I'd ask if you could please open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. I think it was about a year and a half ago that I, I preached a one-off sermon in the morning, and I, I decided to preach from um, one of the narratives from the Elijah and Elisha stories, and, and I love these stories, and so I decided since I get another opportunity, why not pick another one uh, from these great, great, great place in Scripture, certainly one of my favorites. And so I'll read the text in its entirety, and then I will pray for us and ask the Lord to bless us. 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha. And said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. And then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you, please, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down. To the ground before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your special blessing today. Because we are reading your word and this is no ordinary book. It contains your holy oracles. Contains your perfect gospel. It points us to a perfect savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, our true prophet. I pray that we would see him today in our text. And give him all praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What do you do when a great leader goes away? What happens when somebody that others look up to and rely upon in a variety of ways is suddenly gone? I think we know intuitively, and we've seen this in the world, that whenever this happens, it leaves a sort of vacuum in the place of that leader. Because that leader did all sorts of things that very few other people could do. He had responsibilities that others struggled to fit into. And you find very quickly that no one can easily step into the place of that one who is now gone or left. And we see this not just in a religious sense and the people of God here or in the church, but we see it in every area of life. We see this in in governments and we see this in companies and we see this in organizations and all manner of places we see this reality. I recall just a few years ago when Dr. R.C. Sproul died and I was thinking to myself and I even had a couple of conversations with others in the church about whether or not there would be another Dr. R.C. Sproul on the way. That someone to step into his role of leadership broadly across the Reformed Church's Uh, in America, as many saw him as a great expositor of scripture and so on and so forth. And I remember having discussions about this and thinking, well, probably not. Probably not for a long time will will that ever happen. Or if you want something just a little bit older than R.C. Sproul, you could go all the way back to Alexander the Great and recall what happened to him after his grand empire had conquered so much of the known world when he died at such a young age... 32, the empire quickly split into four. It couldn't be managed. Nobody could do what Alexander the Great did. And whenever this happens, whenever a a great leader departs, it tends to leave those who are left with a sense of unease, a sense of anxiety, or perhaps even fear. And that's exactly what's going on in our text today. Elijah is soon to depart and to be with the Lord, and really the timing couldn't be worse, so it seems. And that's because Israel is in a very dark place at this time. Uh, If you know anything about the life and the context of Elijah, you'll know that this is a time of great idolatry. That there is idolatry rampant through Israel, brought in by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel not so long ago, and particularly the worship of one deity, Baal. And the fad of Baalism and Baal worship had stormed through the land. Not only do we see that, but we see that the few believers that there are are hiding. They're persecuted. They're living in caves or they're living in communities. And all of this time, Elijah has been leading them. As their prophet, he's been fighting their battles. He's been the one boldly opposing wicked kings and preaching a message of repentance from city to city to city. He's the one who defeated the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel. He's the one who heard the voice of God speak to him on Mount Sinai. He's the one who can raise the the widow's son back from the dead. and, And so many other examples we could go on and on about all the great things that Elijah has done. And now he's leaving. Now he's departing. And there's an air of worry 
left to the people of God? How, how will they make it without Elijah, perhaps? And I think the best way to put it is what's lurking beneath the surface here is a question not just that Elijah is leaving, but is God's power departing with him as well? Now that Elijah is gone, will God continue to bless us? Will he continue to show us mercy? Will he continue to protect us and to to rescue us and to save us? That's the question they're really asking all throughout this text. That's the question that this text is trying to answer. I don't have main points this morning, but I just have main divisions, uh, kind of to break the story up into two. The first division is in one through eight. We see one final journey, uh, traveling narrative. And then in verses nine through 15, we see... Um, we see the new prophet of the Lord. So we'll start off with our first, with our first point, the final journey. Uh, we begin, and the narrator tells us right away what's going on, so there's no, there's no uh, getting into it, there's no surprise. Look at me at verse 1. It says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. And so this isn't a surprise to anybody. Elisha knows that it's coming. All of the others know that it's coming. And in the midst of this, Elijah and Elisha go on something of a, of a road trip. They go on a, a, a journey toward the Jordan River and they're traveling from city to city. For example, they go to Gilgal and they go to Bethel and they go to Jericho. And finally, they end up at the Jordan River. And if you could see it on a map, all of those things are moving in a straight line, as it were, point to point toward their final destination. And it seems to be that they're saying goodbye in each of these cities. They're going to see this group of people known as the sons of the prophets, and they're giving their farewell discourses, and they're saying goodbye to these sons of the prophets. Now, I should just briefly ask the question, Who are these sons of the prophets? Because there's kind of some vagueness here. We don't really see them mentioned very often in Scripture. They're only mentioned in a few places in 1st and 2nd Kings. And so, really, we only have best guesses. Now, some would say that these sons of the prophets are essentially prophets in training. They go to prophet university, and Elijah is the headmaster. And they're all studying in the ways of profiteering, or profiting, I should say, better. Um, Excuse me. Uh, They're studying to be preachers, you might say. I don't think that's the most likely option. I tend to think that these are simply groups of remnant families, that these are believers who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. These are believers who don't want to engage in Baal worship, and so they've essentially been forced out of cities, and they're living together in these communities. But regardless of who they are exactly, they look to Elijah for support. He is the one who is leading them, and now he's going from city to city, and he's preparing them for his departure. Now, just a few things I want us to notice in this travel narrative, kind of to ask What are we supposed to get from this? Uh, Now, a few things I want us to take note of. The first thing is, notice the faithfulness that we see in Elisha. Look with me at verse 2. We see his faithfulness, or you might even call it uh, stubbornness a little bit. But he says in verse 2, And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. 
But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And then they go and they're in Bethel and the same exact thing happens again. You might have noticed that. You might have thought maybe Kurt accidentally read the same thing multiple times. I didn't. It's in the text multiple times. The exact same conversation happens at Bethel. And then it happens again in verse 6 in Jericho, where once again, Elijah asks him, Elisha, please stay. I don't want to burden you. I don't want you to be with me this whole time. Don't worry about me. Let me go and do this by myself. Three times he asks him. And three times Elisha says, no, I'm not. I'm coming with you. We see this faithfulness. He doesn't want to leave his master. He wants to be there to the very end. I think it reminds us so uh, easily of, of Ruth and Naomi that she, she clung to Naomi and said, I'm not departing from you. We see that here. He is faithful to Elijah. A second thing I want us to see is the anxiety taking place. Uh, throughout this travel narrative. The anxiety over Elijah's departing. Look at me at verse 3. It says, And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And just like the last scene with Elijah and Elisha asking Elisha to stay and him saying no, This also happens multiple times. It happens again in verse 5. It's almost identical the way the the sentence is written. The sons of the prophets come again in Jericho. And they ask him, don't you know that Elijah is being taken away? Don't you know that he's not going to be with you anymore? And we can kind of understand this because Elijah, as we've already noted, is a big deal. Everybody is talking about the fact that he's going to go away from them. Everybody is discussing it. We even kind of get the picture that they're discussing it apart from Elijah in in hushed tones. They're talking about it with Elisha himself. Everyone is, is gossiping about this. Everyone except for Elisha. We see that he's the only one that doesn't want to talk about it. He says to them, I know it, so keep quiet. I already know about this. You don't need to keep reminding me. You don't need to bother me with this yet again. And I think what we're seeing here is more of that anxiety surrounding the leaving of Elijah. Elisha is grieving. grieving. He's showing grief here by not wanting to talk about what's so soon to happen. And, And perhaps you've seen this or heard about this, sometimes when families will gather because they know somebody is going to die and the family is gathered together, ironically, they tend to not talk about the death that seems to be oncoming. They will either not talk at all or they'll talk about other things, common things, everyday things, because talking about the obvious to come is painful, it's difficult, it's hard. And that, I think, is what is going on here with Elisha. He's grieving because, after all, his entire life has been changed by Elijah. If you go back just a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 19, you see that Elijah came and he found Elisha. And he put his cloak on him, uh, in essence saying, I want to train you. 
follow me. And Elisha had left father and mother. He had left inheritance. He had left home and land and all sorts of things behind to learn and study under Elijah. And now he's going to be all alone. And so we see that anxiety. And the third thing I want us to see in this travel narrative is the most important one. The divine purpose of what's going on here. And we see this displayed in the miracle that happens at the end of this section. In verse 7, for example, look with me there. It says that 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance away from them. As they were both standing by the Jordan. Now, evidently, these sons of the prophets know that something big is coming. Because... I find it kind of humorous that they they come and they want to watch what's going to happen, but they stand very, very far away, just in case there's any debris or or any big things happen that they don't want to be caught in. And they know it's coming, so they come and watch from a distance. And look with me at verse 8. It says, Then Elijah took his cloak, and he rolled it up, and he struck the water. And the water parted to the one side and to the other, so the two of them could go over on dry ground. Now, if I were to ask you, what is that alluding to? I think everybody in here would raise their hand and say, I know, I know. It's an allusion to the Exodus. And I would tell you, you're sort of right, but sort of wrong. Because I don't think this is a, an allusion just to the Exodus event when, the, when Moses parted the Red Sea and the people of God escaped from Egypt. I think it's actually allusion to the second time that a sea was parted. See, we always forget about the second one, which happens in Joshua chapter 3, when Joshua parts the red, excuse me, the Jordan River, and Israel enters into the land for the very first time. Now, it's interesting that it's alluding to that because that period in Joshua 3 was very, very similar. A very similar circumstance was happening in that Moses had just died. And the people were afraid of going into the land without the the man who's been leading them for 40 years. And there was anxiety there as well. And the Lord was trying to show that he would continue to bless the people now through Joshua. So I'll give you just one example. And in Joshua 3.17, it says this. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And the parting of the Jordan there in Joshua 3 was just the proof that God was indeed with his people. And so what is the point here in our text as we see this miracle unfold now for a third time and a fourth time? God is still with his people. He's still faithful with his presence. He was with his people under Moses. He was with his people under Joshua. He was with his people when Elijah was there. And he will continue to be with his people long after Elijah departs. What does that show us? That God's power and God's blessing are not permanently affixed to any one person ever. And that's important for us. Because it shows us that we as the people of God must not idolize leaders. We must not think 
more highly than we ought of those who lead us. Rather, we are to keep our eyes on the Lord. Why? Because it's he who blesses his people. It's he who is faithful generation after generation. It's he who has given grace from the beginning and will give grace far into the future and for all eternity. It is God who blesses his people. At times he uses instruments, at times he uses servants, but it is always God himself. And after all, we're talking about the God who does not change. The God who is faithful from the beginning to the end. The God who sustains his people day after day. The God who pours forth new grace and new blessings in every season of life. He truly is the God from whom all blessings flow. That's what we see in this first part of the text, in the travel narrative. But what about the second second division where we see the new prophet of the Lord? Well, we see as the scene starts up that Elijah and Elisha are alone. They're by themselves at the Jordan River and far off in the distance watching everything, but not close enough are the sons of the prophets. And we see this in verse 9. It says that when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken away from you. And so there's this wonderful moment where he turns to him and he says, well, certainly you must have been following me all this time for a reason. What is it that you want from me? What is it that I can give you one final gift? And look what he says in the rest of verse 9, what Elisha says. He says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And we kind of scratch our heads and wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? Is he, is he saying, I want double your faith? Is he saying, I want double your power to do miracles or, or double of your power to bless or something like this? And I don't think so. I think what he's asking is, can I be the next prophet? Elijah, can I be the next prophet who leads the people of God at this time? Now, why do I think that? Because a double portion is sort of a technical term for an inheritance. It's what you would give To the firstborn son. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 21, in verse 7, it it gives the law explaining this. It says of the father that he shall acknowledge the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. And when we talk about this double portion, this double inheritance, I don't want you to just think stuff. That the the first son gets a whole lot of things that the other brothers will frown and be sad that they don't get. No, it, it comes with an idea of responsibility. He is stepping into the role of the father. He's carrying on the father's name. He's carrying on the father's work and his reputation. So what Elisha is asking for here is a prophet's inheritance. He's saying, I want to step into that role to be the next prophet. And further evidence of this is in verse 10, where Elijah responds by saying, you have asked a hard thing. Now, why is it hard? It's hard because Elijah doesn't get to make that decision. That's that's way above his pay grade. Only God gets to choose who the next prophet is. This is not for Elijah to give in the first place. But what does he do? He gives something of a test. Look with me at verse 10. Elijah says... 
Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And so he gives this test, and we might be wondering, well, what is he being tested for? What is the test trying to find? How will this test determine whether or not Elisha is actually the chosen prophet of the Lord? And I think the answer to that is is this. The test is a test of his prophetic spiritual sight. Now, we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament that prophets could at times see spiritual realities in a grand way. They could see these spiritual realities before them. And that was a a kind of spiritual sight that God had gifted to certain prophets. So I'll give you just one example. Uh, In just a few chapters, in 2 Kings chapter 6, there is a king in Syria. And he decides that Elisha is a big problem that needs to be taken care of. And so he sends an army, the king of Syria, to the front doorstep of Elisha's home. And we're told that Elisha's servant walks out and he sees the armies of the Syrian king before him and he's terrified and he's frightened. And Elisha comes out and and we see this interesting verse in verse 17. It says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, there was the great armies of God all around there the entire time. And of course, the servant can't see it, but Elisha could see it the whole time. He has this spiritual sight because he's a prophet. I think that's what this test is trying to discern. Will Elisha see? Will he see the spiritual realities that are going on here? And the the story progresses. Look with me at verse 11. It says, And as they still went and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And so we have this wonderful scene. It's it's grand, uh, where they're walking, and all of a sudden they get separated by flaming chariots and flaming horses and circling around Elijah. And then a whirlwind appears, and Elijah is taken up to heaven in this miraculous and incredible way. And what's... The point, well, the point, the text tells us, is that Elisha saw it. He saw what happened, confirming that he is, in fact, the next prophet. The Lord has, indeed, chosen him. And he he evidences this by saying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Well, now Elisha is the prophet of of God and, and the whole rest of the text and really the whole rest of the chapter is designed to prove that to us again and again. So, for example, in verse 13, Elisha goes and he takes up the mantle of Elijah, literally and metaphorically, taking his cloak and his role and his position. And then in verse 14, he performs the same exact miracle. 
The same miracle that Moses performed and Joshua performed and Elijah had just performed. Now Elisha is doing it as well, parting the Jordan River. And he gives this wonderful line in verse 14. And as he's doing it, he, he says, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the answer is obvious. He's, he's with Elisha. He's still with his people. And everyone else there recognizes it as well. That's how the text ends. Look with me at verse 15. It says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. That is, the spirit of anointing, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of prophecy. They can see it. Elisha is now the prophet given to them by the Lord. Now why is that? Why does that even matter? Well, because now the people don't have to fear. They don't have to worry. They don't have to wonder if, if God and his power have left them alone to their own devices in this dark time in Israel's history. They don't have to wonder if they're doomed now that Elijah has left them. No, rather, God is proving to them unmistakably, that he will be faithful to them, that he will continue to care for them. He will continue to be with his people. He will continue to supply them with the profit that they need. And I think the most beautiful part of this text is that it reminds us that this is not just true in their day. It's true even more so today for us, the people of God. Because we have a prophet like none other. We have a prophet whose scripture tells us is greater than Moses. Who is bolder and fiercer than Joshua. Who is wiser and a greater leader than Elijah. And in every single way far surpasses Elisha. That prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if we consider him often as our prophet. That is to say, he is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. He doesn't just have the spirit of anointing. No, Jesus Christ wields the spirit of God. Scripture tells us in Matthew 4 that Jesus Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He sends the Holy Spirit. He's better than the Old Testament prophets in the sense that they only speak the word of God, whereas Jesus Christ is the word of God in the flesh. He is God's word incarnate. In other words, Jesus is so much more than just a king who rules over us. He's a prophet who guides us. He's the mouthpiece of God who perfectly proclaims the word of God for his people. He perfectly speaks the word of God and nourishes us and guides us and leads us. You and I don't have to worry when things change. You and I don't have to worry with the changing of the seasons and the changings of the times. Why? Because we have a great, unchanging, ever-living leader, the prophet the one who speaks his word eternally to his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a great prophet. Let's pray.